My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. is positioned for success. After correct administration of all the prerequisites and precise undertaking of the prescribed instructions, a ritual is undergone allowing the mortal practitioner to lend his very flesh over to non-corporeal angels and demons who have fallen beneath, straining to reach upward and elevate themselves at our expense. Grimoires are dangerous business for desperate fools, or so we're told. Nothing is off limits with today's guest who comes in like an enlightening gust, cutting through the fog, helping to sort through this murky and macabre subject. Archaeologist, occultist, educator, and past contributor to the blockbuster YouTube channel Spirit Science, Chris Leans, joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Chris Leans. When I was like still in college, whatever it was, I attempted it. I, I, I sort of followed the whole ritual procedure uh, with the 50 names of Marduk, and I sort of invoked the name, did the whole thing, and it was, and it, it worked effectively. You know, I, it was a completely clear night. You know, I, I was in London at the time. Uh, it was a completely clear night. There was no clouds, there was no wind, there was nothing. And within about, I don't know, five, six minutes calling ritual and there was a full-blown thunderstorm like outside um and it, it just worked and, and as quickly as i had performed it and it had started about 10 minutes later it just stopped you know it's like from a completely clear weather no cloud in the sky no record on, on the weather forecast whatever it was anything synchronicity like that i'm like yeah this system works so, so it does work the stuff does work the first thing that always hits me when I got to Estonia is that it is a very kind of traditional country. And obviously we have the war in, in Ukraine going on at the moment and Estonia is on the border with Russia. So the, one of the first things you notice when you first sort of get into Tallinn is there is a lot of sort of anti-war memorials, a lot of like posters, that kind of thing. But other than that, it is a very kind of traditional country. And it's also one of those, it's one of those weird things because because a lot of it was occupied by the Soviet Union for the past sort of 20, 30 years, they don't have 
a strongish sense of their own spirituality or their own sort of religious practice. In fact, a lot of Estonians are actually quite atheistic, although there are quite a lot of churches and there are a lot of old churches, but no one really goes to them too much. It's really interesting. But the Estonia holds the record in Europe for the, well, the highest amount of population that believes trees have souls, which I think is quite a funny one. And as weird as it sounds, I mean, probably not as weird considering this is a kind of a podcast of metaphysics or something like that, but in general, but... Estonia is also one of those countries where the it, it has one of the highest planted trees, or like the tree percentages in Europe. It has like, I think, 51 or 55% of the entire landscape is trees. Like, so they'll have like a whole planting initiative. So the air is super clean. It's also on the North Baltic Sea. So you get this whole beautiful updraft of like Baltic Sea air, which is great. But there is something about the greenery here that does have a noticeable feel to it. Like it does feel noticeably different. Um, and like, uh, that's coming from me who growing up in England, like we are, I grew up in Kent, which is the garden of England, which has like trees everywhere. Mm-hmm. But like there is a different, there is a different kind of spirit, a different kind of souls with these kind of trees. It's really, it's a really interesting feeling. I love it. Like I, I love being here. I, I'm again, I, my, my background for any of this, I was in archaeology. So oh, I was an archaeologist for four or five years. So seeing a whole medieval town and everything is like right up my alley anyway. So it's great. Wonderful. Well, we're right off and running to the races here. I love it. I hit record because what you're talking about was so fascinating. But Chris, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. You have your own podcast called Into the Cauldron. And my girlfriend Tara introduced us. She said, hey, you really got to talk to this guy. And here we are. I'm glad to have you. It turns out it's good timing. I'm interested to know more about Estonia, but I won't, we won't spend too much time on that right now. Tell me about yourself and where you got into this exactly, because you said just before that you spent some time as an archaeologist. Now Hmm. it seems like you're broadening into a perspective shift in some ways where now you're your own boss in some ways too, right? You're kind of taking the taking the lead which is exciting and awesome the same thing that i did with my podcast and it's worked out really well and obviously you're incorporating your knowledge of hermeticism the occult so when did this all begin for you chris well so if we back up a little bit initially sort of get get into my general background so i well my, my sort of general space of being or my general sort of life path for a very long time was as an archaeologist. I originally graduated back in 2019 and I spent sort of four, four or five years in London, initially getting my degree in archaeology. And then I graduated and I spent some time working in commercial archaeology and a lot of kind of other things. I worked at the British Museum for a little while and some other archival places like that. But I predominantly specialized in Near Eastern archaeology. So I mostly looked, well, it's kind of a weird story, actually. I, I initially started out in Egypt which I think most people who are generally interested in spirituality or magic or metaphysics generally do. And I sort of specialized in that for my first two years, got to about my third year halfway through, and I ended up kind of falling in love with what is the, all the period now, the, all the, the, the geographical region, which is called the Levant, which is basically kind of modern day Syria, Israel, Palestine, that kind of area, Jordan. And I ended up doing my thesis originally on the early, or the cultic scene of the early Bronze Age in the southern Levant, which is if you look, if you imagine where sort of Israel, Palestine, Jordan is, so that southern area just next to Egypt, I focused a lot of my research initially on 
sort of the initial cultic scene there, like what the religious practices were, what the magical practices were, reconstructing any of that sort of pre, should we say pre yahwistic so your pre-Yahweh kind of theology and the religion, like the pagan religion effectively, of Southern Levant in the early Bronze Age, which was amazing. It was really fun. I excavated out there for two seasons. I was excavating at a place called Pilar Jezreel, which is in, it, it's just on the border of Syria. Uh, which is really, really great. Also, it's sort of a little, a few kilometers south of the border of Syria, really. But I excavated there two years. I actually led a trench there in my second year because I, I went back for two seasons. And then I sort of came out of archaeology after having worked there in commercial archaeology, also having come back, having worked in, in, in that. And I excavated in some sites around England. I excavated on a site in Wales, which in the Priscelli Hills, which was very, which actually ended up becoming kind of famous. It, there was a documentary made about it because we ended up kind of finding like a second Stonehenge kind of deal. It's a very long story. It's very, very exciting. I, I excavated on a couple of those sites. Then I went into commercial archaeology for a little bit. And then I had a huge kind of paradigm shift or a huge kind of interesting like general shift of intellect or general shift of meaning where i mean i had always kind of specialized in in the archaeology of ritual especially that's what i was looking at so i was looking at how we study ancient magic or, or ancient belief systems and reconstructing them especially from a what we call a phenomenological standpoint so what does it mean when we're the subjective experience of ritual or magic in the ancient world. As somebody who is a priest or a magician or a mystic or a prophet, whatever it is, what actual experiences were they having? What techniques were they using? Whether they, were they getting into altered states of consciousness? Were they using entheogens or psychedelics? Any of these kinds of things. I was reconstructing that kind of tradition. And that inevitably led me into looking at the period that is now known as, as late antiquity, which is more or less a period from sort of the late third century up until about the sixth, seventh century. And that is a really fascinating period for human history or us in general, because it's the period that we get a lot of the traditions that we now sort of group in under, under sort of the Western mystery tradition in general. So things like Hermeticism, Gnosticism, any of these, alchemy kind of emerges in this kind of similar time period as well, various different capacities in different areas, what kind of thing. And I ended up just because of my love of Egypt and because I started out originally in Egypt, I think it was inevitable that I kind of fell into Hermeticism. And I got quite obsessed with Hermeticism and Gnosticism to a lesser extent, but the Gnostics are kind of weird. But it was mainly Hermeticism and Neoplatonism that I got quite established with. And I sort of shifted a lot of my scholarly attention towards looking at those two currents predominantly. So a lot of my work was focused around Hermeticism and, and Neoplatonism. And I started doing that. And then during, that was two years ago, three years ago, sort of time. And around that sort of general time, I then started jumping around from sort of YouTube company to YouTube company or sort of online general journal, journals or anything like that, writing general kind of metaphysical, spiritual content. It's one of those things like ghost, I sort of ghost wrote a lot of stuff for a lot of other companies. So I'm one of those people who has probably written something you've seen. You just, like my name isn't attached to it, so you don't know it's by me. <laughs> because I wrote for some of the bigger companies, a couple of the ones that had the 2 million subscribers, 3 million subscribers on YouTube. And eventually I kind of went my own way. I ended up founding my whole platform. It has always been an issue for me, the inaccessibility of good sources. It's, it's, it's very easy for people sort of in academia to fight back at sort of the public and critique people like Graham Hancock or any other kind of major pseudo-archaeologists who are out there purveying in information to the public and people go, like, oh, well, the public's kind of stupid because they just eat it all up. It's like, well, 
It's not really true because the public don't have a massive amount of access to good sources, right? And if they do, you go to Nature, you go to any of the good journals, whatever, you have to pay a monthly subscription. It's quite hefty. So it was always a, a bit of a pet peeve of me with academia where a lot of it is locked behind paywalls. There is a very kind of elitist culture in academia, which is very healthy, I don't think. I generally take the opinion that there should be no distinction between academic writing and accessible writing. I think people, I think we should be able to exchange sources quite freely. I'm a big believer in open science, which is having, making your research available for people essentially. And what inevitably happened with that is I, I kind of channeled all of that into making my own platform. It's actually my own school where I am teaching historical philosophy, historical spirituality, and historical magic, effectively. I'm looking at systems like Hermeticism and Gnosticism, and to a lesser extent, things like the PGM, so the Greek Magical Papyri, and I am working to reconstruct those practices and then teach people sort of that general worldview and how to actually put these things into practice to achieve lots of different things, whether it's communication with spirits and deities or altered states of consciousness and theophanies or general kind of self-development. And it was one of those other weird things where I've done a lot of things. That desire for sort of personal transformation, self-development inevitably led me to where I am right now, which is kind of Tallinn, Estonia, which inevitably basically just meant I ended up qualifying as a coach because I realized that I guess I was teaching a lot of things, but a lot of my students were coming to me having issues in their life and they were needing more sort of one-to-one tuition or they were needing more one-to-one guidance a lot of the time and inevitably when you're on social media when you're doing podcasts when you're doing this kind of thing it is kind of a business onto itself right you are you are your own brand effectively and you need to learn to market yourself otherwise you don't make it in so i'm like okay i'm gonna go qualify as a business coach so i'm gonna i'm gonna learn how to do business like I'm going to go in, I'm going to learn all this kind of stuff, and then I'm just going to kind of apply it to everything I'm doing and start scaling and start doing all this kind of thing. And I've had some pretty good growth with it. Recently started a YouTube channel, and so I'm getting into that medium now. And I started my podcast about a year ago. I've spoken to a lot of people in the adult community, which are days very fun. I love doing interviews with people like this, like this, just generally sharing stuff. But it's yeah, it's a fascinating journey because I kind of I've gone from teaching all this kind of stuff into qualifying as a business coach so I can consult companies and things like that. So I know how to scale business and anything like that. But then also I'm still teaching what I love, which is historical spirituality, right? It's ancient spirituality. And I definitely have a soft spot for hermeticism. Absolutely. It's kind of, it's where my wheelhouse is really. Yeah. And I have been tuning into your podcast, Into the Cauldron on a more recent, I think the, the latest episode with Rufus. You mentioned something that I want to bring up and have you clarify and maybe share your thoughts, expand a little bit. You mentioned, or maybe Rufus mentioned this, I can't be too sure, but you both commented on the fact that when you get into ceremonial magic, whatever iteration of it, you sort of have these like naive, silly hopes and dreams that kind of push you into drama that then molds you based on the choices you make, right? So people go into it with this notion that, oh, I'm going to do a spell and then I'm going to get the girl in my dreams. And that happens, but it ends up being more of a quest than a genie in a bottle just granting your wish, right? And I wonder, do you think that people 
are just stagnant and our society has left people kind of frozen without a clear path on how to achieve these things that are really innate and human because we've been given this sort of, oh, we got to go to work. You got to make this money. You got to do this. A lot of what it means to be human has kind of been left up to our own devices and people feel unsure on where to go. Do you think that's partly why magic is so appealing and even effective for a lot of people? Yeah, I think it's a complicated question because I have two conflicting opinions on it for the most part. On the one hand, when we look at magic historically, especially if we look at the ceremonial grimoires, for example, so anything from the medieval period, the Renaissance, but also to a certain extent, even the PGM, right? So the Greek magical inquiry back in in the early, early first, second century, however, that period, which is where I look at things. The goals of magic have always been very mundane. Ironically, it's something that people, it's kind of a weird thing to wrap your head around, but a lot of the goals of at least the ceremonial tradition, it's not, it's not this kind of pop culture spirituality. It's all about, oh, ascension, transcending the body, doing this kind of thing. That's not magic. That's something that's a different thing. And it's very kind of 60s, 70s, 80s kind of stuff, right? There were some traditions in that, some like theurgy, although theurgy isn't magic. It's entirely different. I would identify that more as ritualized philosophy, but magic since the PGM and the majority of the ceremonial stuff is descended largely from the PGM. That's the origin of the ceremonial tradition. Mostly, most of the time, if not all the time, it has very mundane goals, right? The goals of magic are very much about securing yourself in this life, right? It's things like protecting yourself from thieves. It's getting a new partner, bringing a woman to you usually. Although actually, I'll say saying that while that's definitely the case in the later grimoires from the medieval period and the Renaissance, we have just as many accounts in the PGM of women performing love spells on men and also men performing love spells on other men as well. Ancient Greece was a very kind of liberal culture in that kind of way. And women performing cells on women. So it is kind of another thing people like to kind of retro and go, oh, the patriarchy in the ancient world. It was very horrible. It's like, mm, it's not what the texts say. So I hate to break it to you. But a lot, again, a lot of the stuff is, again, it's finding a new partner. It's securing lost property. It's doing this kind of general thing, right? So the goals of magic have always been very mundane. But I think part of the problem, it really lies in how we define magic lies in, in, in what exactly it is. And the problem that we have with it is that magic as a technology, and I largely do believe magic is technology. I'm very much kind of the persuasion that sorcery, magic, whatever you want to call it, although they are kind of different things, they're subsets of each other. I think it is a technology. And I, when I say technology, I say it because the magic or magia in ancient Greek, it was classified as a technique. And techne in ancient Greek, it basically means any kind of discipline or field of study that was believed to have a learnable set of principles, that if you apply it, then a certain result happens. And that's how the Greeks sort of conceptualize magic. It's always, it always kind of very clearly goes back to Egypt. The Greeks love the Egyptians. They even think the source of magic is Egypt itself. And we have a reason for that in the Asclepius, which is one of the Hermetic texts. Or in Greek, it's known as the Logos Telios, the perfect discourse. And in that, they say that Egypt is supposedly, it's the temple of the world, effectively. It's the place that is chosen by the gods. And the people living there, therefore, have a responsibility to continually upkeep the gods. But magic in that era is very different to what we would dub as magic today, right? Because you look at magic today, it's all kind of, it's merged with weird new age practices. So when you talk about magic, you're like, oh, well, energy work, manifestation, all these kinds of things. 
none of that is really magic, I would say. I think probably the closest thing to something like modern New Age manifestation would be something like chaos magic, or it's a type of chaos magic. But even then, there's no real basis for the whole thing. And I think one of the biggest problems that we have with this kind of thing is that, as you were saying here, there, there really does seem to be a lack of progression. And part of the reason why is people are taking such an eclectic approach to their practices nowadays that traditionalism is kind of going to the wayside and what that basically means is progressionism is effectively dead. When you, in the ancient world, if you were learning magic, right, if you were going to learn magic, it would have been probably on a one-to-one basis. But it's very rare, if any, the wearing actual schools of magic. I am a very big critic of the term mystery school. I think it, it's absolutely ridiculous. From a historical standpoint, the mystery cults or Eleusis, Samothrace, uh, the Mithraic mysteries, whatever, they were not schools. It gives the wrong impression to call them schools. When we think, when we call it a school, it implies that there are, or there is a teacher, there is students, there is some kind of form of curriculum that we are learning from. That is not what happened at all. There may have been off the books individual tutoring if someone was trained to be a higher fan or a high priestess or whatever. That, that's a bit of a different story. But as, as far as the mystery cults go, whatever, it was very much, it, it's a ritual performed for the benefit of the congregation or on you. It's not something that you're taught to do. Only the higher fan would know the end of mysteries, whatever it was, right? But you were, if you were learning magic in this kind of way, it was very much on kind of an apprentice master relationship, right? It was very individual, very personal. But you situate yourself within a tradition. And when you do, that gives you a set of rites of passage. It gives you a set of milestones, gives you a set of texts to read in a certain order and tells you what to do. And the biggest thing is you have a sense of community. Right. Magicians in the ancient world, if you if they were priests, for example, as most Egyptian priests also doubled as magicians, especially as the temples start to close, they had a sense of community, they had a sense of progression. And we don't really have that anymore because there are, are generally sort of what we can dub as three distinct ways of interacting with spirits or interacting with the divine in any other capacity. There is religion, which is kind of the exoteric form of interaction, which is mostly for the benefit of the whole congregation, it's benefit for, or benefit for the whole society. And generally you will have kind of built up myths or characters or whatever it is. And Plato and Socrates, both of those philosophers, or a lot of the early Greek philosophers, they are very critical of those myths. They actually, in fact, Plato's even quoted, I think, in the Republic and in the Timaeus of saying that the gods that we know of ancient Greece are actually like their secondary gods, their lesser gods in comparison to the higher one, which is the true intellect, right? Or the true like consciousness of their whole reality. Or they were created secondly. And then we have these stories which deals with the exoteric nature. You would then have had the mysteries or the mystery cults, which are essentially the esoteric dimension for religion. So if we take something like Eleusis, it, it's, it was dedicated to probably Persephone or Kore Demeter. There is some some possible links to a, a Mycenaean era, so like a pre, pre-Greek Dark Age cult where Poseidon was also involved, as Poseidon had the Earth Shake, or Poseidon was the original king before Zeus. And that's based on some evidence we have from Arcadian cults. So there are some cults in Arcadia that bear that. But it, it talks about a kind of a different theology, for example. If you look at something like the Orphic Mysteries, so the mysteries that are attributed to Orpheus, they have a very interesting theology in that Zeus is kind of considered to be a demiurge figure who ends up kind of reforming the world after Kronos, or sort of Kronos and, and all the Titans initially form the world. They then give birth to the gods, 
And then Zeus kind of takes on this role of the demiurge in the Orphic Mysteries and then ends up reforming the universe into the one that we have now. So our universe is kind of a second or third universe because Zeus recreated it as the demiurge. And that's very Orphic, very strange. And that then the entire universe and our entire progression as human beings, effectively Zeus self-actualizing, right? And Zeus learning himself through the universe that he's created and then all of us are part of it. It's very interesting. It's not like any of the other sort of general mysteries or any of the other mystery cults. But my point is to loop this back around to your original question. We don't really have that sense of progression anymore because we have religion there, which is that thing, mysteries, which is the dimension of religion, which is basically gone. Now there are no mystery cults left. The closest thing would probably be something like modern Freemasonry or some of the like, Rosicrucian system, which is like self-initiation. And then of course there's magic and magic your personal relationship with these spirits, right? And there does, there's been a lot of work, especially in the case of PGM, where it, it seems like a lot of the general ritual procedures, while they may be following some religious outlines, a lot of the kind of formalities are relaxed in favor of a more personal relationship with the deity, right? You're using different names, which again, names carry power. The ones that aren't used in, in public, you're using specific substances, different things that relate to the deity to call them in. And like, I think it's a very personal endeavor. By the way, it's a sense of progression and we just don't have that anymore. And I think as a part of that, magic or modern magic has kind of lost its soul to a certain extent. And while that, that might sound a bit dramatic, there does seem to be something missing because when you look at all of these ceremonial procedures, or if you look at the Abramelin ritual, for example, Abramelin Worms, he talks about at one point with the guidance of his holy guardian angel, whatever, he like stretches out his hand and had three withers in front of him. All these kinds of things, all the Renaissance magicians, the medieval magicians who are doing things like the Goetia or any of the ceremonial procedures, they seem to be describing very physical entities very physical things that they are physically seeing and they can to, to the extent that they can give very detailed descriptions of these things as as clear as i'm seeing you right now you're seeing me right compare that to what we have in modern magic what we have in modern kind of general magical spiritual practice in general uh, that's one of the things that's continually annoying me because i see it on the goetia fanboy forums all the time where people are like oh my god the candle flickered once my incense like wafted slightly therefore the demon is here it's like something doesn't add up there for me i look at what they're describing in in, in these grimoires versus what you're saying is happening right there's that we're missing something in here and i think a large part of it comes down to worldview honestly our worldview ultimately determines our reality and something like magic and to a certain extent astrology because like to some extent and some people may disagree with me on this i don't think we can really be practicing magic if we aren't also having a discussion about astrology because i think especially if you're into the whole ceremonial tradition ceremonial magic and the grimoires is basically just watered down astrological magic if you look at something like the picatrix or you look at any of the older kind of astrological grimoires it's much more like astrological magic is a kind of ceremonial magic, but it is the highest form. It is the most complicated form of ceremonial magic. And when you understand something like the Picatrix, or if you read any of the Arab philosophers, Al-Kindi, Al-Biruni, anyone like that, there, or especially like Thibit Thabit Ibn Karab, who is the highest astrologer of the Sabians, who is like, they are the best astrologers and reigning astrologers in the ancient world. Read any of that kind of stuff, and then read the grimoires and you will see how much like how much watered down it's become like astrological stuff is like the gold standard and then it kind of gets into the grimoire tradition and it's kind of 
yeah, it's a bit in it. And it's one of those weird things. I started in the grimoire tradition. I love the grimoire tradition. It's really interesting. As I've kind of matured in my own magical practice, I have become more of an astrological magician. So now I, I mainly make talismans or do planetary work, or I work with planetary spirits more so than the Goetia or anything like that. I'm a pretty big critic of the Goetia, which has almost got me cancelled a couple of times, ironically. <laughs> but it's an interesting thing. But either way, yeah, I, I think modern magic has kind of lost its soul. And I, again, I think the reason being is that we don't have the same worldview that these people did. Magic and astrology, to a certain extent, it relies on the pre-modern worldview, which is you need to know about the active intellect, you need to know about the world soul, you need to know about the divine forms, and Plato's analogy, all that kind of thing, because they are the mechanisms through which magic works. Right. They are the ways how we can actually define how it's working. And we don't have that in the modern world. So we tend to try and equate how magic works to a materialist paradigm because the modern Western world is inherently atheist, atheist materialist. That's the underlying philosophy of everything. Now, the problem you have with that, of course, is that underlying philosophy basically means that everything results from matter, right? All consciousness results from matter and matter and energy are the same thing. Thanks to Einstein, the field equations e equals mc squared, right? There's a matter, a matter energy equivalency. The problem you have with that is it's an, it makes things inherently devoid of meaning and purpose. And it inevitably tends towards nihilism and it makes everyone depressed. And that's why we're having a huge mental health crisis, right? Because the worldview doesn't really work. But you can't practice magic, at least if you're going down the traditional sense, you can't practice it in the modern worldview. It's in astrology and magic is incompatible with a modern worldview of sort of atheistic materialist science where you try and equate everything to go, oh, well, energy or everything's coming from matter. No. When you're doing ancient magic, you're doing astrological magic, things have a certain level of correspondence. There is a thing and they correspond to ideas, they correspond to things in the world soul. When you arrange certain things in a certain way at certain times, then it creates corresponding effects in the world soul, which inherently then creates other effects astrologically, which then eventually manifests physically through this kind of sympathy and correspondence. But none of that is discussed in, in, in modern spiritual practice. And I think that's a large part of the reason why people find it so interesting, absolutely, but there is a very big lack of sort of the transfer of information. People will they'll find it interesting, and then the second that it starts to contradict that material worldview that we unconsciously have as a bias, people turn off. The second we try and say, okay, well, actually, magic maybe isn't working with our worldview. There's no logical way to explain things. And people can be on the surface, they can be very kind of odd and be like, oh, well, I'm very spiritual. So it doesn't matter to me. I'm not in this modern worldview. If you have grown up in the Western world, you have this worldview, whether you're aware of it or not. And if you're unaware of it, that's more of a problem, right? If it's up because it's working through you unconsciously. So you need, you need to spend time actively sitting with your own worldview and how you think the world works and begin to unpack that a little bit before you can really start to understand how magic works. But then once you do, then you can find that like well, your practice will really skyrocket and it will really start working. And then like you're like, oh, yeah, I understand how this works now. Right? Like you can start seeing synchronicities and start seeing things align all that kind of thing. So Absolutely. it's an interesting way. <laughs> yeah, well, I had two questions and you just sort of answered them with that last part there. And I'm wondering when it comes to the art of performing these rituals in the correct corresponding windows of time that, you know, 
match the effect, the desired result. It almost seems like achieving that is such a feat that if you could, it, I don't remember the old adage, but if you can do that, you can do anything sort of, right? It's almost like a test of the human consciousness baked into our soul in a way, right? I mean, to- yeah, I think it's a kind of self, like I, I would argue definitely it's a kind of self-initiation. The ability for you, like it, there's no two ways about it. If you want to be a practicing religion, you have to be a scholar, right? You have to be able to research and be able to do good research. If you like, as, as cynical as it sounds, you're not going to get impactful magical practice from scrolling Instagram, right? right? right. From scrolling that kind of shit or looking at random things on YouTube, whatever it is. Like some, again, some YouTube is different. It's very good, but you're like, like in general, you're not going to get those powerful, I don't know, oh shit moments in magic that everyone's ultimately searching for. If you're being honest, right? We want to be a, we want to be awestruck with something we want to have an experience where like oh like i have no idea how i can explain that like that's genuinely something else we're not going to get those experiences unless you're willing to dive deep into it unless you're willing to put the time and the effort in to really do the research and figure out how the stuff works if you're not willing to do that then you're not ready to be a magician hmm. like you're not if you're not willing to do the research and put the time in to understand how the system works then you're not going to get very far right and this is true historically every magician that we know historically was an active scholar, right? You go back to the Renaissance, you go back to the medieval period, these people, someone like Marsilio Ficino, for example, so the guy who translated the Corpus Medicum, he translated Plato at the same time. He was a genius. He was a polymath, right? He graduated top of his class at a lot of universities. He did a lot of interesting stuff, but he was fundamentally a scholar, first and foremost. There is no real distinction between sort of scholarship and occultism in the ancient world because sort astrology was part of the university curriculum. So it was a thing that everyone kind of knew how to do it and you have to learn how to do it. And it's, I suppose you can draw parallel because again, I'm talking about ceremonial magic quite fiercely here. And that's not the only, that's not the only type of magic, right? So, and this is where the definition kind of comes in of how exactly we're defining magic. If you were to sort of take an ancient definition of it, or you were try, to try and use a definition that made sense to an ancient person, an ancient magician, it would be, you have to include spirits, right? Essentially, like, the simplest way of explaining it would be that magic is the ability to create change through the agency of spirits, or through the agency of spiritual allies. And those spirits are persuaded or forced or coerced to, uh, to work with you or to create the desired effect through the use of what we call sutenomata in Greek, which is correspondence or sympathy. Sympathy is not being sorry for you in a sense. It's sympathy in the sense of correspondences. Things are sympathetic with each other. So a spirit, let's say you sort of have your, again, looping the astrology, you have your general sort of planetary sphere, right? Seven planetary spheres, Mercury, Saturn, whatever it is, right? And each of those planets will contain a divine idea. Right. And this is where the, the traditional worldview comes in, which is kind of what you need to tax magic. The best person to look at this kind of thing, I think, who synthesizes it very well is Agrippa. So Cornelius Agrippa, he is a Renaissance magician. He writes the Kribos and Philosophy. They are foundational texts to anyone practicing magic. You need to read them. And he does a very good job of really simplifying this worldview. And he basically says there are three different kinds of worlds, right? We generally kind of like to think of Oh, well, there's a physical world, there's a spirit world. Like that, that's kind of the general modern perception of things. And he goes a little bit deeper. He goes, no, there are three worlds. There is, or starting from the top, 
right? Or all the center, depending on what your cosmology is and how you see things. The Greeks were very vertical. They very clearly believed there was a vertical hierarchy being. But he's under the impression, first, you have the divine world, right? Which is the realm where the angels live, or it's the realm where these higher entities live. And that ultimately is the mind of God. Right, we have sort of God at the center, and God, in a sense, it could be a, it, it can be a literal being, it could be a consciousness, it could be a force. It depends on your cosmology. But you, at the top, you have the mind, essentially the intellect of God, and that is is emanating out the divine ideas. Right, so this is textbook Plato. It, it's the theory of forms of ideas. Right, you have the divine mind that is thinking of things. Right? It's thinking ideas. Basically, the simplest example I can say here is like if I was to draw draw a triangle on the screen or draw a triangle. I have a pen with me, I can't do it right now. If I was to get a bit of paper, draw a triangle on a page, right? It's not going to be as perfect as the triangle I can see in my mind, right? Because I have the idea of the archetype of a triangle in my mind. But if I was to then get rid of the paper triangle, does that mean that every triangle in the world suddenly disappears? Does the idea of a triangle disappear? No, of course not. So So can we say that in that case, do we know that there is an intangible, have non-material form of that triangle, right? The idea of a triangle would exist. There is a spiritual archetype to a triangle. Now imagine that every single thing in the universe is, is founded on the same principles, that everything exists as an idea first, an archetype or a spiritual version of itself. And again, we're using the word spiritual. Plato really doesn't even distinguish between that. He is the first to distinguish between matter and sort of non-matter, I guess we could say. I mean, even matter isn't really the good word for it because Plato doesn't have any conception of matter. The closest would be soma, which is body. So Plato doesn't have any kind of conception of physical stuff that we're seeing. He calls everything the body because he thinks it's the body of the world soul. So we can't really talk about matter in the context of Plato because it doesn't exist. But well, he, he does seem to make a distinction between Soma and Asunomata, which is sort of bodied and so immaterial, essentially. And there is this idea that the forms of the ideas are immaterial. And that's the first layer of reality. At the heart of reality, you have this kind of divine image, this divine being, this divine force, this thinking ideas of the being, right? And those are generally about the, the platonic virtues, things like love, justice, beauty, whatever it is, right? Then if you sort of go down the hierarchy of being, go down the chain, you come to the celestial world, which is what we now call the astral world. Astral literally just means star. And in fact, Plato is, again, is the first one to come up with the term astral body. And it literally means star body. And the astral is the realm of planets, right? It's from where astrology works. And hence the word, astral, astrology, astrologos, literally the speech of the stars. That's really what it means in Greek. And in this kind of capacity or in this world and in this celestial world, we have the planets, we have the fixed stars, right? All the spheres of the planets and the fixed stars. And the planets are not necessarily forces unto themselves. They are the celestial embodiments of the platonic ideas. So if we imagine that at the heart of reality, we have the idea of justice, for example, or, or violence, or whatever, or war, whatever it is, comes up or thinks about, right? That idea is then manifest in the celestial world as Jupiter, for example, because Jupiter embodies justice. In Kabbalah, it's Chesed, right, which is loving kindness, mercy, whatever it is, right? And Jupiter, therefore, embodies the platonic idea of justice. If we keep following that chain of being down, we then get to the material world. And this is Agrippa's third world, the physical world, the material that we live in right now. And this is kind of the ultimate sort of mystery of the whole thing in that Agrippa and everyone in the antiquity for the most part placed the physical at the bottom 
molten top. Now we've flipped it backwards. We say the physical threat here. Okay? So the, in the ancient world, everyone took a spirit first approach or a mental first approach. And this is kind of the weird thing. When you say the word spiritual or the word soul or anything like that, people automatically assume religious. And they automatically assume, oh, well, you're talking about spiritual mumbo jumbo shit, whatever it is, right? Doesn't really work when you think about it because Plato, again, doesn't make a distinction between the soul and the mind. In fact, if anything, Plato says that the mind, the rational mind, is the higher sort of reasoning of the soul. So they're effectively the same thing. In fact, the word that he uses, suke, in Greek, is where we get the word psyche today. And essentially what he is saying about more when you read, especially if you read the Timaeus, what he, what he effectively talks about it is it's an inner organ of sensory perception. It's our inner self, effectively, what he's saying. That is, the way he describes it in basically every sense of the word is how modern psychologists describe the mind. He doesn't make a distinction between the mind and soul. So every time that we are talking about the mind, effectively here, we are actually talking about the soul, right? Whether you're talking about consciousness, awareness, whatever it is, we are addressing the same thing. I think on a society-wide level, because we are trying to establish ourselves as an atheistic or mechanistic culture, we all kind of collectively have this weird religious trauma where everyone's kind of like trying to distance themselves from saying, oh, well, I'm not religious, okay? I'm not spiritual. And it's a very kind of weirdly Eurocentric, Western-centric, it's like a weirdly colonial mindset as well. Where it's like, it's building on kind of old anthropological models, especially Dachymian models, which are trying to argue that religion is in opposition to science, that science is kind of the emblem of progress, that the more rational we become as a species, the more advanced we get. And therefore, religion, magic, spiritual stuff is all kind of remnant of an older age, it's all superstition. The entire point of science is to disprove superstition. So therefore, they're completely different things. That has that, that didn't exist pre-Enlightenment. For like all of human history before the Enlightenment, there wasn't a distinction. It's a very modern idea that we're trying to distance ourselves from religion, especially. And that's where it's come from. A lot of this kind of like modern materialist or sort of atheistic paradigm of things it's coming as a reaction to religious trauma. A lot of it has come from a reaction to the influence that the church had. I think we didn't really like that, which is understandable, but it's it's an issue when you're not aware of it. But it's, again, when your worldview is happening unconsciously, that's when there's an issue because then the inherent biases and things sneak in, ultimately. So, yeah, my train of thought. Remind me where, where we're we going. Well... We're heading in a direction trying to explain essentially why we're in this position of science over religion and how it's sort of affected our connection to the soul and our even our understanding of all these things. Science has kind of led us to this position of nihilism. If that doesn't remind you, I do have a question, though. So you mentioned earlier how the Goetia, you have some issues with it. And I understand. I have some issues with Crowley myself. And he has a, I think he rewrote the Goetia, or at least practiced. Probably. Partly, yeah. right? So he's involved with it. I have a copy that has his name on it for some reason. I forget the other gentleman who he published that with. But um, that? Well, it was McGregor Mathers. And that's like, it. part of the whole issue with Crowley is that he kind of stole McGregor Mathers' translations and then published them with his own. Right. So Ma McGregor Mathers was the original one to translate it, but Crowley kind of stole Mathers' translations and published them himself. Well, and, and Crowley sits 
in this time period around the same kind of departure from the old modern to this new well, modern, yeah. right? Where now people are very much about scientism as a for emblem of progress, as you say. And I wonder where Crowley fits into that in his role, because there is some strange connections to the government, allegedly, and obviously he wasn't exactly the most moral character. So, yeah. No, I mean, so Crowley is one of those people, like, as a magician, I do quite, I like Crowley mm. as a magician. As a man, I think he's a yeah, right. As a man, he's an absolute rat of a person, did terrible things. Morally, he's bankrupt. He used to do, I mean, I say that, you kind of got to give him credit for how creative he was in his moral bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. He, he used to do things like he would meet with all the lump, the, the famous London occultists. He'd invite them all out for dinner. And then he would only take $100 bills with him. So when it came time to pay for dinner, like the restaurant can change any of his bills. So all, all his friends would pick up the tab and he would get a free dinner. But like it's that kind of thing where it's like, yes, it's morally kind of bankrupt and ship. You kind of got to admire him for his creativity with it a little bit. It's as, as weird as it is. But as a man, yeah, he's, I don't particularly like him as a human being. I've mentioned a couple of my podcasts before, like my biggest critique of Crowley is ultimately that his hedonism was caught in the way of his own true will. This idea of the true will, right, Nithaloma, which is kind of more your own kind of higher, well, I don't necessarily want to call it your own higher calling, but your highest will, right? The will that is imparted to you by your holy guardian angel. And nothing should get in the way of that. And supposedly, if you're following Crowley's telemic system, when you are in alignment with your true will, you are in alignment with why you are here inherently. And you will notice, or he says, a person in line with their true will, doors open for them. It leads like they're just kind of breezing through life. It's very simple. Everything's very easy for them because they're acting in line with their highest will. He did not do that, right? He wrote the system. He philosophized it, which is great. I think he's brilliant for it. But his own sort of, his own hedonism and his own, he like, I was on a podcast with Stephen Skinner a while ago, and Stephen Skinner put this really well. He's like, he just had, Sally was just having too much fun to be a proper magician. And you have to understand, I would characterize Crowley almost as like a proto-troll. He was trolling before it was cool. <laughs> he knew 100% the picture that the British tabloids were painting of him. They all painted this image of him being this massive Satanist, that he was the most evil man in the world, that he was sacrificing children and doing weird sex rituals. And regardless of whether he actually was or not, there is no evidence that he ever sacrificed children. But regardless of whether he was or not, he knew the stories about him and he catered to them. He would go on, he would deliberately go out and do these interviews. Well, and 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 that's kind of... And that, sorry to cut you off, but that's kind of where I was hoping to lead you to with my question mm-hmm. is because it does seem like Crowley's celebrity occultism influenced what we now consider celebrity and even the pop occultism, which is like something you said you took umbrage with. I agree. I think it's laughable. Some of the stuff I see on Instagram at other times, oh, yeah. I see things that I'm like, well, bravo, kudos. But yeah. for the most part, it is a lot of like, yeah, clap your finger your hands together three times in front of a pink candle and you're going to get your crush is going to write you a love letter yeah, and it's stuff like that. Or this trending sound on a sigil or whatever and it'll right. get something to happen. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those weird things because you can't really separate Crowley, at least from the perspective of modern ceremony magic, you can't separate Crowley from that system. You can't take out, you can't take Crowley out of Wicca. 
even. Wicca owes, and this is even more controversial, I would argue Wicca owes more to Crowley and ceremonial magic than it does to British folklore. Gardner and a lot of the Wiccans, when they were inventing the system, they were kind of very big on this like, fact that, oh, Wicca is the old religion. It's the old British pagan folklore druid religion. It's like, no, you read any of the texts, it's very Crowleyan. It's very sort of ceremonial. A lot of the, a lot of the spirits and things are all from Hebrew and Egyptian sources. They're not British in any kind of capacity. And the things that are British, things like Sununos isn't British anyway, which is Italian. Any of the other kind of general Druidic or Welsh goddesses or anything like that, they all come from sort of 10th, 11th century Welsh poetry, which is post-Christianization. So they're not authentic paganism. Or they're not sort of, I won't say authentic, they're not kind of pure paganism. They're, they're more sort of Christianized versions of things. But with Crowley, yeah, you can't take Crowley out of those systems. Because he galvanized this whole thing, right? The, the whole reason we, we even argue the entire reason that we know about the Goetia is because of Crowley. He's the one that pushed it into mainstream, right? For better or for worse. But I don't agree with Crowley's assessment of Croatia. Crowley was under the impression in much the same way as people today are kind of obsessed with quantum stuff, quantum mechanics, quantum physics. Crowley and all the magicians of his time period, it's all the late, all the early 1900s, psychology was the brand new thing psychology was the in science at the time so everybody all the magicians back then were trying to make everything psychological they were trying to say they were, they were trying to prove magic through the lens of psychology in the same way that modern new age people like patropro whenever are trying to prove spirituality through quantum physics everything works in cycles exactly the same thing and Crowley, he's very famous in his perception of the Goetia for saying that the 72 Goetic demons, they correspond to 72 different parts of the brain. And when you're working with them, it activates a different center of your brain or whatever. No, absolutely not. There is nothing in traditional sources. That's, that like, that's like hack phrenology, right? That old sign, yeah. like it's essentially yeah. phrenology applied to, yeah, that's silly. Wow. It's very strange. And I can understand it. He was, again, he was trying to prove magic through the, like the in science of his days. Totally fine. But it's, yeah. The Goetia, again, the Goetia, my issue with the Goetia is... I'm trying to think of the best way to say this that won't get me hated on. <laughs> the Goetia is kind of a joke, honestly. And I don't mean that to be derogative. I mean that it literally has its origins in satire. The 72 spirits that we know about in the Goetia, the ultimate source of them, where they come from, is another book by a guy called Johannes Weyer, who is the, the student, effectively, of Agrippa, who I mentioned earlier. And he wrote a book called The False Monarchy of Demons. And it's not even really a book. It's an appendix that he adds to another one of his books that he wrote called The, the what it, De Prestegis Magica, which he wrote as a defense of witches in the witch trials. So Weyer is one of the early kind of rationalist psychologists, is a way I can describe him, where he was one of the first people to say that people who were getting tried in the witch trials, effectively, they, rather than having sort of magical abilities or whatever, they could have been mentally ill and they could have been having visions or they could have been schizophrenic or bipolar or whatever it is. Or he didn't have words for them, like words for those conditions. But that's effectively what he was arguing, that people in the witch trials who are undergoing these kinds of things, especially if they were undergoing torture, they were not, they, they weren't evidence of real magic these people probably had some kind of mental illness and they were being punished for having mental illness. And so instead, rather than torturing them, we should be trying to send them to hospital and get them help or that kind of thing. And as an appendix to 
that text that he writes in defense of witches, he adds on this little text, the Pseudomonarchia Demonum, as what we, where his exact source for it isn't necessarily clear. I think it's probably the Liber Malorum Spiritum, which is the Book of Evil Spirits. But he sort of adds on well, adds on this sort of little appendix to his text. And the general kind of introduction, or the general kind of vibe of the whole thing, is basically him just sitting there going, huh, look at how stupid all these witches are. These are all the, the ridiculous spirits they believe in. How stupid is this? And, and then somebody effectively took that list that he made as a as satire, as a joke, right? And then just turned it into an entire Grimoire edition, right? They, they, they took that entire thing. And it's also distinctly Anglophone. It's very British. It, it doesn't exist. Like the Magitron tradition doesn't exist outside of England. And somebody took it and it effectively, they ran with it and they developed it into this whole sort of lesser key of Solomon system. Now, when we have sort of the 72 spirits, but the first principal source is Wea, it's Wea Pseudomonarchia. And he wrote it purely as satire initially. And it's like, it's the living definition of that meme where it's like, when your satire is so good, it becomes canon. Like that's literally what's happened. Right. Um, wow. And it's just, it's so interesting to me like i don't object to anything in the Galatia per se like as far as a magical, like as far as a magical system goes there's not if you're only reading the old Galatia, there's not enough in there anyway to reconstruct it you're not going to get enough of a i don't know if you're going by the traditional standards you're not going to be able to get a manifestation using purely the old Galatia alone you need to be looking at the other books you learn about the old paulina the old Theurgia or the Theurgia Paulina, the Theurgia Goetia, the Ars Armadel, all that kind of thing. The Ars Notoria is not originally a part of the Magitom. It, it's an entirely separate tradition that is much, much older. It's medieval or early medieval angel magic. But I, yeah, my, my main issue with the Goetia is people think it's something it's not. People are very kind of quick to jump on the bandwagon. And again, it's mostly Crowley. Like people are, we can attribute this to Crowley for the most part. People kind of come in, they're like, oh my God, the Goetia is perfect. The Goetia is this ancient book of evil spirits. I'm going to summon it and I'm going to get my crush to like me, or whatever it is. It's like, I hate to break it to people, but if you read like any other ceremonial grimoire, there are a lot better ones than the Goetia. The Goetia is like the, it's basically, I don't know, it's the best way of explaining it. It's basically like all of like the shit parts of the other traditions that somebody just got together and just like chucked into a book and yeah, this kind of works and then just kind of put it out. And like, there's no real logical structure to it. I mean, there's no real like authentic tradition. I mean, there is a tradition to it. It is part of a wider tradition. And it also depends on which manuscript of a Goetia that we talk about. I, they're like the version that Mathers and Crowley translated is from a specific manuscript. And you could argue that's its own thing. And generally what people define as Goetic is if it contains those 72 spirits, right? So that, that list of 72 spirits that largely derives from Weyer and then probably the Liquid by Warren. So we have other ones, something like the Goetia of Dr. Rudd, which Stephen Skinner has done a great work on, which I think is Sloan. I can't remember the exact manuscript number. It's like three something. And Dr. Rudd's Goetia is far more elaborate and far more advanced. It contains the corresponding verses to the Shemehemephrash angels, which is a vital part of the whole process. Anyway, you need to invoke the angel before you summon the demon. That's what gives you the power to summon it in the first place. But what's inevitably happened with this whole thing is because that's kind of the main text that everyone initially reads, everyone kind of thinks that's it. 
that's ceremonial magic. And then no one reads the European sort of monotraditions. No one reads the French or the German ones or any of the other things. And people think, oh, well, that, that's the only kind of ceremonial magic you can do. Like, no, there's planetary magic. There's medieval angel magic. There's work with elementals. That's working with the Olympic spirits. There's hundreds of different kinds of ceremonial procedures you can do, none of which are related to the Croatia. So my issue with the Croatia is not so much what's in it, because what's in it is effectively just you're scraping the bottom of the barrel of the ceremonial procedure, effectively. It's more just what people think of it, and people get so defensive of it. And they're like, oh, the Goetia is so perfect, you can't critique the Goetia at all. It's like it's always considered heretical to critique the Goetia, and I will fully die on this hill. But like, no, the Goetia, the Goetia is not like at all what people think it is. Please read some other grimoires. Like the... Um, Trithemius, for example, right? Trithemius's angel scoring or the art of drawing spirits and crystals is a far easier and a far more substantially developed practice than the Goetia. It's far simpler to do. And a large amount, even then, right? The Theurgia Goetia, right? So the second book of the Lesser Solomon is effectively the first book of Trithemius's Stenographia. Right. Somebody basically just took it out of context or sort of plastered it onto the end of the Vasquebasia. So if you think of what we call the Lassicure Solomon, it's basically five, five or four or five different texts that somebody basically just chucked into a book together, none of which have really that much to do with each other. So you have the Asquebasia, which is the first book, which is kind of its own, it's its own system, its own tradition there. And then you have the Theurgia Goetia, which is the second book, and something like the Asbolina. Right now, the Theurgia Goetia is the first book of Trithemius' Stenographia, and Trithemius is, is the mentor of Agrippa, and he has this whole thing of drawing spirits into crystals and all that kind of thing. It's all very good. Arzal Model is another one that's often put in there, and that's that has some other, and that that's the one where you've got have a wax tablet and a working table where again you draw spirit into things. And this is something that people often mistake when you're putting into practice, especially if you read the grimoire. People have the impression when you're summoning a spirit or wherever it is, the spirit's just going to appear in front of you like a physical person. It's like, mm, not, there's not really, that's not really what it says in the grimoire. Like, it's much more common for you to invoke or evoke the spirit into a mirror. So, like, you invoke it into something. Trithemius invokes them into crystals, or he evokes them, rather, into crystals, so the spirit will appear in a crystal, or an obsidian scrying mirror. Rudd uses, I think he, he places it on the brass vessel, and he also uses, like, the glass receptacle. So he puts kind of, like, a fluid condenser into a, a glass thing that the spirit then manifests in. Well, there are lots of different ways for how the spirit manifests. Very few of them are, like, physical manifestations you see, like, an actual person on the other side of the circle, whatever it is. And again, all the other systems are far easier to use. They're far more developed than the Goetia. But people just like the Goetia a lot because of Crowley. Well, it's kind of the big famous one. You see magic circles plastered all over, over eBay or over YouTube, whatever it is. And magic circles are another weird thing. Like the version of the magic circle that we know from Crowley with the Hebrew and the snake around it and the triangle, whatever it is, that is extremely late. It's a very late state addition to to the whole system. It's like 1600s, 1700s, whatever it is. And it's also kind of weird because the older traditions, especially you go back to something like the Heptameral or the Lucidarium uh, Nigromantiae, the circles change. You don't have one, one consistent circle the entire time. You went like the names and the sigils that you carve or you draw around the sides of the circles. 
it changes with the hour that you perform the operation. It also depends what season you're working in. It depends what hour you're working in, what day, what astrological forecast it is. It's you to put different things. So like usually, I can't remember the exact order. I mean, the heptameron circles are like, if you have the name of the hour and all the day, then the angel that rules the day, or the angel that rules the hour, then the angel that rules the day, then it's sigil, then the around the side you put the names of the governors of the air or the winds and then the name of like the earth in whatever season it's in because the name of the earth changes depending on the seasons the name of the sun the name of the moon again they also change depending on the seasons and then also the name of the season that you're in and some of them most of them are also hebrew names for things but the point is the circle is not one consistent thing it changes depending on like what hour you're performing the ritual then right so you need to consecrate it or create it every time at least in the earlier grimoires, it isn't until quite late in the whole tradition that we get a sort of a consistent circle that stays all the way through. That we like to so have the same names going all the way around. And even then, like the names and the things that we have on Crowley's circle, they're not even so remember, they're all Kabbalistic. They're, all, they're, they're mostly from Kabbalah. It, it, it's from, I think, it, what, Echea to Levaya, or whatever it is. And you go through, I think it's east, I think around the south area of the circle, if, like, if I'm picturing it correctly. You have like Echea, Chesar, Metatron, whatever it is, right? So they're all Jewish Kabbalistic names. They're not even necessarily uh, like, you know, ceremonial or ritual names. And again, all of that kind of comes from, again, the Golden Dawn was very Kabbalistic in its own way. They, had, they were very into their Hermetic Kabbalah as well. But some of it comes from the original, the original stuff as well. But it's just a very strange, a very strange procedure. But a lot of my my practice again takes a lot more from something like Trithemius. Like his art of drawing spirits and crystals is probably one of the easiest systems for working with spirits. I think probably among other kinds of general evocations or whatever it is. Other than that, most of my work is PGM, so it's all free stuff. Because the definition in Croatia has changed hugely. I mean, we can get into this maybe a little bit later. But someone like Jake Sharp and Ken has done a huge amount of work on the Greek folk magic origins. Croatia is originally a necromantic practice before it was applied to demons that we can attribute the application to demons mostly to early theologians, mainly Augustine and Isidore of Seville in his encyclopedia, because he kind of equates demons. Oh, it's kind of a weird long story. He ends up, I think it's Isidore in his encyclopedia. He has this idea that he keeps hearing this theory that people or magicians are summoning the dead, or they're summoning their ancestors, or they're summoning past spirits or past prophets or whatever to seek advice, whatever it is. And he makes the claim the only God can truly raise the dead. So these people, they can't, clearly they can't be talking to the dead because only God can raise the dead, surely. So therefore it must be a demon disguising itself as a dead person. So that then sort of shifts the meaning of something like necromancy. And it becomes what we call necromancy in the Middle Ages, which is called the black art. But that's how the system gets conflated ultimately. But yeah, Goetia was originally Greek folk magic. It had nothing to do with demons. Yeah, it had it was most a Catholic, as in underworld stuff, very much from the Greek tradition. And James Kind tends to a lot of work on that. So it's very interesting stuff. But I wonder how much H.P. Lovecraft was aware of that, because as you said, these things happen in cycles. H.P. Lovecraft yeah. writes about the old ones, and then yeah. I forget who was it, Levey comes out and publishes or a group of occultists publish the Necronomicon that now is kind of famous on the Barnes and Noble yeah. shelves for being the evilest book that you could buy at a Barnes and Noble. Yeah. <laughs> Lovecraft has had, despite 
despite him himself having actually a very limited knowledge of the occult, he does he really doesn't seem to have really any sort of substantial knowledge outside of pulp fiction. He was never initiated, he was never a part of any magical order or occult order as far as we know. He had a very limited knowledge of the occult. He had an amazing imagination, absolutely. But he has become one of those interesting figures who, despite having no like core knowledge of the occult, he's been picked up by a lot of modern authors and he massively influenced the modern occultist scene. So something about the Necronomicon. So Lovecraft's original Necronomicon, there is a working theory, actually, I can't remember who says this, that Lovecraft maybe based his idea for the Necronomicon on the Picatrix which is the one of the early Arab astrological grimoires. So again, if you think about there are some similarities, the Picatrix claims to be this kind of old book of Arab wisdom, ultimately. The Necronomicon is written, of course, by what's the name? Abdullah Al-Hanazed, which is the mad Arab, right? And the Picatrix is this grimoire for drawing down astrological forces you know, from planets and spirits of the planets and that kind of thing, which again are celestial objects. They are from space. And the planets are in space, the Picatrix is a grimoire drawing down astrological power. And the old ones, they're all the Necronomicon, and the old, old, in the Necronomicon, the old ones are described as cosmic space entities, right? So there are similarities here. So there is a strong, I would say it's a strong chance, people may not agree with me, that Lovecraft based his idea for the Necronomicon on the Picatrix, which itself is a very interesting text. But yeah, you get things like the Simon Necronomicon, which was published in like the 70s and the 80s. And... We do know who the author was. The author, the guy's name's not Simon. I can't remember. One of my friends told me recently, I can't remember the dude's name, but there was actually a funny mix up. It was in like the 90s, whatever it was, when the copyright for the book got renewed or something like that. The real author's name got put on the new copyright. So we actually found out who it was. And he's kind of a weird dude. Actually, I can't remember the guy's name, uh, but he's quite a weird guy. But I have a, I have a bit of a different sort of opinion to maybe other practitioners when it comes to the Necronomicon, because as far as the backstory, everything goes, it's complete bullshit, right? As far as that goes, like the, the, like the Necronomicon or, or the Simon Necronomicon, yeah, it, it's, I can promise you all right now, it's not Black Book of Sumerian magic about old ones or elder gods, whatever it is. No, it was written in the 80s or the, or the 70s, whatever it was, right? And it's based largely on mixing HP Lovecraft stuff with some Kabbalistic stuff and a lot of Crowley stuff. And I think, yeah, you are right. I think LaVey mentions some of the old ones and things in the Satanic Bible as well. And he drew a lot from Lovecraft there as well. But it's, a uh, I don't know, the Simon Necronomicon, the thing with it, which is very weird, is I still haven't quite figured it out. I always kind of took the opinion that they were all just thought forms. They're all kind of aggregates in general, like all, like all like the watchers or whatever that I talked about in there. They're not only because it doesn't have any historical value necessarily, the backstory isn't true. I always just kind of assumed that they were thoughtful, they were equitable. But the system works. It is a workable magical system. And if you do it, you will get results with it. So, like, regardless of whether the backstory is real, the system does work. And whether you are calling on those entities that he's talking about in that book or not, or whether you're calling on something else, I don't know. But the system does work. So I don't usually mess with it anymore. Like it's not really something I particularly like. I enjoy. I prefer my Egypt, my Egyptian and Greek stuff personally. But I had quite a good, quite a powerful experience with the what's it called? Towards the end of the book, you have the fifty names of Marduk, and there is a name I can't remember which number it is. One of the names in there is supposed to excite rainstorms or cause rainstorms. And sort of when I was initially, this would have been I was what 
17, 18, so like many years ago, when I was like still in college, whatever it was, I attempted it to afford the whole ritual procedure uh, with the 50 names of Marduk. And I sort of invoked the name, did the whole thing. And it was, and it, it worked effectively. You know, I, it was a completely clear night. You know, I, I was in London at the time. Uh, it was a completely clear night. There was no clouds. There was no wind. There was nothing. And within about, I don't know, five, six minutes performing ritual, there was a full-blown thunderstorm like outside and it, it just worked. And as quickly as I had performed it and it had started about 10 minutes later, it just stopped. It's like from a completely clear weather, no cloud in the sky, no record on, on the weather forecast, whatever it was, anything synchronicity like that. I'm like, yeah, this system works. So, so it does work. The stuff does work. And I'm also like, I also did a very minor path working through the Necronomicon gates there. So if, so if you know the text, some people who know the text, obviously they have a selection of gates that he talks about how you sort of travel to the realm of the old ones through these gates that you kind of inscribe on the ground or look into whatever. And I did a couple of those where I painted the gates and all the symbols from the gates on the floor in chalk or paint, whatever it was in my apartment at the time. The oil lamps did it at the astrological time. And I ended up having some very macabre, strange visions about shit. Like it was equivalent, what I, what I would say, it was comparable to like when I was on like a low dose of psilocybin, but I was completely sober. But I did have quite quite visionary experiences with that book. So, and it was, it was again, it was one of my early occult grimoires. It, it was one of the first ones I got into. So I think most people generally, as a whole, if I was to kind of generalize to people, generally people will get into magic probably through Wicca, Usually, like that's how most neo or any kind of neo pagan stuff comes through. But like they'll come in as a neo pagan, they'll then maybe get turned on to someone like Crowley or maybe into Golden Dawn stuff, and they'll get interested in Golden Dawn. They'll start doing the Golden Dawn practice, or maybe through the Golden Dawn they'll find Crowley. They'll go into Thelema, and then from Thelema they'll go into ceremonial magic and the Solomonic stuff, the grimoires, and then eventually you kind of just keep going back and you find a niche you like, you know, whatever kind of magical system you enjoy. Or they'll come in through the Necronomicon and then they'll eventually find something, something else. And I, while I, while I didn't come into Necronomicon, I came in more again from the academic side because I, I came into it because I was studying this from in, or in university. I was studying magic and studying history, you know, history and that kind of stuff. And it's kind of a weird thing because like my initial interest in the whole thing was actually purely academic. Like I, yes, I had always kind of believed in stuff like this, but when I initially started practicing it, especially from the grimoires, I initially kind of took the approach of, okay, well, I'm going to kind of take an academic curiosity approach to this. Like I'm studying this time period. I'm studying these texts. I'm, it, it was very kind of like a weird, like dark academia movie moment for me. I was kind of, I was like up late. I was in the library by myself studying some ancient manuscript at the museum. And it was talking about, there was a, I was studying some Solomonic manuscripts, whatever it was, in the British Library at the time I was in London. And I was working late, that kind of thing. And you can kind of imagine and visualize it. It was raining outside, a little storm going on, the moon shining, kind of sitting here reading this old manuscript where people are talking about demons, or they're talking about summoning with all these different circles, like magic circles, whatever. And yeah, I'm studying the period. I was largely studying it from a, like a linguistic perspective and also just from like a general historical context. And yeah, that was absolutely a problem. It was like, you know what, like they're basically giving me like step-by-step instructions here. Like I'd be kind of an idiot if I did, if I wasn't at least curious to see if it worked. Like if I followed the instructions and I'd see what would happen. 
And then I did and stuff started happening. <laughs> so I was like, oh, shit, this stuff works. Okay. Interesting. So then from there, I kind of just, I just started tracing my lineage back. So I started tracing my lineage back and eventually I landed in, in the Greek magical inquiry, which is now what the focus of my practices. They were reconstructing the Greek magical inquiry. So it's an, yeah, it's a whole interesting thing, but yeah, like going back to the original thing, Lovecraft, yeah, L- Lovecraft has a huge influence on it. And there are people like Kenneth Grant, who is part of the whole, he was part of the Typhonian order and all that kind of thing. And he is, he is very much under the impression that Lovecraft was kind of this tortured prophet that he was kind of communicating with some extra dimensional being or some extra dimensional things who were using him as kind of a vessel to speak through. And there is kind of a magical system there. I can't speak to it. I haven't worked with the Lovecraft system. I generally take the view that they're thought forms, but I also know that is a detached perspective. I haven't worked with the system, so I don't know it. Like I generally think they're thought forms, but I have no idea. I know there are people, I know other magicians who I've worked with who swear by it. You know, or back in the day, someone like S. By Spen Payne, for example, wrote the entire Lovecraftian grimoire, the Black Book of Azathoth, and he swears by the whole system. It, it's, a, it, it's a valid thing. These are, I think the way he describes it is that he was pathworking the Tree of Life one day, or perhaps, or perhaps the Tree of Tree of Death. And he gets to kind of da'ath, the, the sephira in between, and supposedly he discovered these entities inside of Darth or inside the sphere of Darth that are essentially consistent with Lovecraft's mythos. And then he kind of wrote the whole grimoire around working with those entities that he found. It's an interesting grimoire. I haven't tried it. I haven't attempted it. I have no real reason to work with the Cleetha or, or anything like that because my life's pretty fine. So I have, I have no reason to invoke that energy into my life. But if people were interested in it, they probably can and they'll get results, I suppose. But it's an interesting debate. So... Yeah, And that's, I'm glad you said that because that's something that I think is important to highlight is these are tools or techniques as we were establishing earlier. It's not something that's going to work if you overuse it, right? It's something that's specific to specific needs. Now, when it comes to Solomonic magic. You mentioned earlier it's kind of like a composite where the authors would take several other writers and put them all well, in. Well, the Goetia is not all, oh. all Solomonic magic. So we have the, the Lamegipons, which to the lesser Kia Solomon, is its own kind of own tradition. It's its own little bubble of things, which is very kind of loose and very kind of everyone's throwing stuff together. The lesser Kia Solomon is not the only kind of Solomonic magic. We also have things like the veritable key or the greater key and the general clavicular tradition. Clavicular is Latin for key. And that is very popular throughout Europe. It's very popular through in mainly in France and Germany, those kind of places. And that is a much, much more developed tradition uh, that has a much more kind of more established tradition or more established history that can trace more or less linearly back to the magical treaties of Solomon, which is the Hagramantia, which can potentially, I mean, Stephen Skinner has argued that it, it traces back, I think. He argues that the Hagramantia is the missing link between the PGM, so the Greek Batari, and the early sort of Italian Eosolomon things. Because the thing with it, the way Stephen Skinner kind of tries to think, and I, I, I want to this, I don't fully agree with him. On this, I want to say he has hypothesized, he has not proven, even though as much as I love Stephen Skinner, and everyone does, he has. it is a hypothesis, it is not a proven fact. He hypothesizes that the PGM leaves Alexandria or leaves Thebes and one day Luxor, travels with 
kind of the Greeks back to Byzantium, which is Constantinople, the modern day Istanbul, where he claims that the the High Grammatia is written, which is around the Byzantine Solomonic Grimoire, like all the collection of Byzantine manuscripts that are Solomonike. And then when the Ottomans sack Constantinople, the Byzantines move to their stronghold in Italy and they bring that manuscript tradition with them, which then brings Solomonic tradition to Europe effectively it's like there is some evidence for it mainly because a lot of the kind of the italian renaissance begins in florence i mean really it began in florence kind of expanded out there and florence also is the heartbed of necromantic grimoires there are a lot especially at the beginning of the italian renaissance florence seems to be ground zero for a lot of weird grimoires especially necromantic ones but we have a was it ms PLT or Pluton something, the, the Medici Codex, right, or the Florentine Codex, that we have a, there is a necromantic manual or a manual of necromancy in the Medici Library. So they, they were very kind of into this whole, into this kind of stuff. And from Florence, things seem to spread outwards into the rest of Europe, mainly France and Germany. Part of the reason, like, it's a very kind of, it's very good to kind of see that progression. Personally, I don't agree with Stephen Skinner's dating for the Hygromantia. He seems to think it's based off like a 7th century manuscript. It reads an awful lot like an early medieval manuscript, more than it does a Byzantine one, at least to me. And again, I'm not going to contradict or anything like that, but like, like, that's my personal opinion. I think it, like the, I don't think the Hygromantia is as old as he says it is. I think it's more early medieval. But... Yeah, like he has done a very good job at tracing that tradition either way. It's very interesting. And I do agree with him that I think the PGM is the ultimate source of the Solomonic manuscripts, ultimately. But there are a lot of them. So whether you are looking at the Hygromantia, which is the magical treatise of Solomon, which is, he argues, the Byzantine grimoires or Byzantine Solomonicae, and we, or you're looking at the early Italian ones, the French, the German one, any of that kind of tradition, they have a much more established Solomonic tradition that traces back to the magical treaties and some of the earlier Solomonic texts more so than the lesser key Solomon does. So you kind of, yeah, we need to kind of expand our horizons when we're talking about Solomonic magic because the Goetia, like people, and this is one of the issues we have, people kind of conflate the terms. A lot of they say Goetia means Solomonic or Solomonic means Goetia or the lesser key Solomon is all the Solomonic traditions. Like, no, you have Goetia, which is its own sort of self-contained thing, right? That initial Ars Goetia book. And then even then, Goetia is its own other practice, which dates back to Greek necromancy. Um, in fact, I think there is, again, there is linguistic evidence in Greek because Goetia obviously comes from the Greek word goes, which means sorcerer. And goes itself is linked to the other Greek word goes, which is a kind of evocative funerary lament, ultimately. So it was very closely associated with funerals or funerary laments in general. But... You have that tradition, which kind of becomes the Ars Goetia eventually. And then there's the Lesakia Solomon tradition, which is basically the term for just people throwing a bunch of shit together. And then you have the Great Akia Solomon, the all the clavicular tradition, which is the more kind of established European traditions of these things, which is kind of the deeper Solomonic tradition, which date back to things like the Hygromantia and all these other kind of interesting Solomonic grimoires. Yeah, and the Asmopatia, by the way, the Asmoporia, rather, has nothing to do with any of it. That's a completely separate thing. <laughs> right. Jeez. I'm really grateful you're here to sort it out because it does get complicated. and It's kind of crazy, yeah. Well, believe it or not, I've come across a couple of these books, and one thing that I noticed 
about the even the Goetia, but other books labeled as Solomonic magic, is it did feel, and now after saying what you, you told me, it does kind of make sense, did feel like a little bit incoherent or unstructured. And I get yeah. that could be the result of somebody taking other authors and just kind of pasting them together in chapter order. And you're reading through it, expecting it to be like a normal structured book. And it's not, it's like, okay, one chapter is done onto another book. Like, here yeah. you go. Like, different like, author. No, like there's no way like your people made the assumption that the chapters are in the right order. Right. Like, they're not. Why though? It's like, and we have the same thing with, with Agrippa's fourth book for cult philosophy. So Agrippa canonically writes the three books. He, there is a fourth book for cult philosophy that is a, attributed to him, but it's pseudo-Agrippian, so it probably wasn't written by him. But whoever wrote the fourth book of the cult philosophy basically did the same thing. And they basically sort of looked at the Heptameron, especially, and just threw the Heptameron in. And then they also threw in, was it, oh, they, they, they call it to the name? I can't remember what it is. The other, one of the Vanity and the Arts and Sciences, the other one that Agrippa wrote. They also threw that into the back end of it. They also throw in some stuff from some other general grimoires and the daily things. But the fourth of cult philosophy is the same thing. Basically, somebody just kind of looked at a huge amount of whatever magical material was available during their day. And yeah, let's just chuck it all in a book. It's fine. Whatever. So it's like, like the weird thing with it, like it, it is useful because like, it, like it's one of those weird things where like you have like four or five books just like put into one single book. So rather than buying all four, you can just buy that one. Right, and it makes like reference a lot easier. If you try and read it as like a whole like lineal thing, it's just ridiculously confusing and disjointed. And the reason being is that it's like three or four books in one, and there's like they were all kind of thrown in the wrong order mm. as well. And again, it hurts the sense of progressionism as well, like we said at the beginning. Yeah, well, yeah, I certainly feel victim to some of the modern conscious biases, and especially when you confront the way people thought hundreds even maybe thousands of years ago depending on what you're reading but yeah thank you i appreciate it disjointed is the right word for some of the books i've read in this realm now when it comes to solomonic magic one thing that i've noticed through my own research into local esotericism here in new haven connecticut where yale university happens to be i noticed that there is a nine square grid that the whole city was plotted around so the original colonist founders they drew this nine square grid the original town looked like that and the city's expanded ever since and they unlike most other american cities they preserve that city zoning and planning where in other places they're just like whatever we'll just re-carve the roads and make them in a more efficient way right whereas here they're like no we have to con we have to conserve this nine square grid it's special and i read i believe it was oh i forget his name now but uh, another author who's written about england quite a bit hmm he mentioned that there are these same nine square grids in some English towns. And I'm wondering, does this have anything to do with Solomonic magic? Cause that was something I came across. One of the theories that people purported online is, Oh, this is Solomonic magic. Cause Solomon used the proportions of a human to create a temple and yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. Are there any connections with building, planning, architecture, that sort of thing? I wouldn't say it's inherently Solomonic. There is 
sort of precedence or for that kind of thing in astrological magic. So something like, so, so the ninth century Islamic city of Baghdad, for example, was founded astrologically. So all the astrologers, when they were founding the city, they got together to elect a specific time and a specific place to plan the city out and build the city so that it would be prosperous, essentially, that it would be the best kind of way. And they did sort of lay it out according to an astrological geometry, essentially. And that's also something that appears in the Picatrix as well. There is kind of the fabled city of Hermes that is kind of a lost city in the desert that supposedly every single building was constructed astrologically or it was constructed to kind of mirror certain stars in the heavens or in a set at specific times. And effectively what you're doing that kind of, if you're doing that kind of thing, if you're doing any kind of city planning, you're essentially making it, it's essentially an astrological talisman, right? It's the same process. You're just making an astrological talisman that's like a thousand kilometers wide, like an entire city wide. So you have an entire, basically a receptive battery that just absorbs the astrological influence of whatever time you're doing it. So if, if you find, found a town at the right time, you basically have like a 1,000 by 1,000, 2,000 by 2,000, however big your city is. You have an enormous freaking astrological talisman that makes for a very powerful city, very prosperous city. And it's why Baghdad becomes one of the most prosperous cities in the ancient world, because it was founded after water, Well, and it does seem like, it, do, it does Stone. seem like Stonehenge and the pyramids with their alignments and all the other megalithic structures, it, it seems like they've refined that process to make it so subtle that people don't even notice that they're standing mm. in an astrologically, geometrically aligned city. Yeah, part, partly. So there is, I mean, the pyramids are always a weird one. There are, there are obviously a lot of conspiracy theories and <laughs> yes. things about the pyramids. The honest, the honest truth is, again, we still don't know. Like, like, we have a very solid idea. And I am, as an archaeologist, I am partial to the ramp theories. I am partial to all the kind of things. We know slaves did not build them. Aliens did not build them, unfortunately. <laughs> and the, the, the whole thing with the pyramids is always an interesting one. The reason that the whole kind of ancient aliens theory stuff doesn't really stack up is it doesn't really account for the experimentation that occurred in the pyramids, especially Snefru, right? So one of the early pharaohs the, of the, I think it's the fourth dynasty, the guy who effectively kicks off the pyramid building age. They didn't, there, there is this kind of weird perception when it comes to the Egyptians and the pyramids that they kind of just woke up one day and just suddenly knew how to build pyramids, that somehow like someone gave them the knowledge and they suddenly like figured it out overnight, right? It's like, no, like the Giza complex that we see is the result of about four or five generations of refinement there, right? So you have Snefru, who is the original founder of the fourth dynasty or one of the, I can't remember the exact dynasty he's founder of, but he kicks off the building program. And he builds the equivalent, or he builds effectively three or four different pyramids. And or he builds four, I think, I can't remember how it is, he builds the pyramid that he yields Maidum. Then he builds the, like, he, so he builds three pyramids. And the first two of them are complete disasters. He just messes them up completely, right? So, first of all, he builds the pyramid of Maidum. And clearly, whatever happened at Maidum, they botched it so badly, whether it's a limestone issue, whether it's a material issue, but the thing collapsed while they were building it. And they just, like, it, it collapsed so badly that they just left it. And like, you know what, there's no salvaging this, like, we're just going to leave it. And if you go, it's still there, right? And like, they, they missed a square pyramid and then the ins, like, the roof basically just caved in. Now you can see it completely collapsed. Then it's like, okay, cool. That went wrong. What went wrong? Okay, we did all this wrong. Okay, let's build the next one. So then they go and build the bent pyramid of the shore. 
right? So they, and this time they start with two steeper gradient. So they start going up and about halfway up, they realize that they've messed it up. So they turn the angle inward and then they keep going upwards. So it ends up in the pyramid that kind of goes straight and then inwards and then up, right? And then finally, and that, bear in mind, this takes 50, 60 years. This is a generation of time that is being refined. And then eventually they finally built the red pyramid, which is the first successful pyramid. And then when they get that blueprint down after a generation or so of work, then all of his grandsons and all of his sons who are from the same family, obviously, they all copy them. So he and all of his architects basically spent 60, 70 years refining the process and knowing how to do it. And then when they finally got it done, then everyone was copied in. And it's like, it's also just a weird thing because they didn't stop building pyramids. Either. After the fall of the old kingdom, the whole point of a pyramid is to centralize kingly power. It's a mortuary cult, actually, for the pharaoh. And the entire point of it is social trafficking. Right? It's to show the power of the king. And it's to show that he can kind of do all this kind of thing. And it shows that the king is the center of the worldview. And all the pharaoh is the center of the worldview. The problem you have is... After the fall of the old kingdom, all of the like the centralized power that the pharaoh has gets taken up by nomarchs who are little local governors. And they all are, are trying to assert their own power, but none of them can really get enough consolidation to actually build like a good pyramid. So they kind of like people just kind of stopped building them. Not because there was some like loss of form or a lot of loss of knowledge, or whatever. They knew how to do it. They just didn't need to because the, there was never another stage where the king, where the kingly regime was so centralized that they could actually do it. But when we get to the Middle Kingdom, people like Sneferu and some of the, or well, not Sneferu, um, name Amenahat, I think is one of them. I can't remember some of the other ones, some of the early in the Middle Kingdom pharaohs. They also build pyramids, just much smaller, right? So they, they build some at least, I think there's one, there might be one of Lahoon, I can't remember exactly, but they built some for the Middle Kingdom anyway. But there are other interesting magical theories that they are aligned by a planetary cameos or whatever. I haven't really seen anyone that holds a huge amount of weight. There is some theory that I think there is a branch of archaeology called astroarchaeology, which is looking at the way monuments are aligned to certain star constellations, things like that. And there is some evidence that Stonehenge was aligned astrologically with obviously the winter solstice and summer solstice and all that kind of thing. And, and they do have they have to have a very working knowledge of the cycles of the universe or the cycles of the solar system in general, know this kind of stuff. And it's one of those, I don't know, it's one of those things that like, I, it, it's got me accused of being cynical sometimes, which I'm just selling into at the moment. It's kind of becoming my new identity. Just because you can't figure out how they did it doesn't mean aliens did it. It just means they're probably smarter than you. You know, they knew how right. to do it, right? They figured this shit out. Imhotep, right? Imhotep is the high priest of Ra in Heliopolis. He's the guy, the architect of the first pyramid. Right, he's the architect. This guy's a genius. He is a polymath. He know probably knew multiple languages. He is, in every sense of the word, a complete genius. And he is also one of the only people who whose name we do actually know from the Archimedes because he's inscribed alongside Snefru's name, which is very. Old. I think it's Josa. I think he's the architect of the step period of Josa, actually, and his name is written alongside Josa as well. He was so important that he was eventually deified in the middle and the new kingdom he became a god unto himself right people started worshiping him as kind of the god of craftsmen and a god of healing and the greeks eventually translate him over into asclepius and asclepius is kind of a god of healing and asclepius also appears in the hematica as well which is also kind of a surefire influence of all their egyptian origin as well because they're talking about which is itself very interesting but they figured this shit out 
right? They were very, like Egyptians were very smart. <laughs> you knew they knew this stuff. It's the same kind of thing. Well, it's interesting. You just brought to mind another example of this astrologically aligned archaeology. Have you ever heard of the Glastonbury Zodiac? Yeah, yeah. What do you? I've been asked me quite a few times. It's quite, it's quite an interesting idea. Yeah. See, now as a as someone who's from the UK, what do you think of that? Is that kind of like our Roswell, where it's like a touristy kind of thing that people go to, or partly? I mean, Glastonbury is one of those areas. Like, I have two perspectives on it. Like, it's one of those things you go and there is something about the place. There, there is a very definitive energy to the place. It definitely there is a feel to it you know and people it does draw people there are a lot of pagan sites there are a lot of holy sites like holy wells pilgrimage places the white spring the red spring what kind of thing and the red spring especially is still an active pagan shrine to the goddess the celtic goddess bridget and also there is a, a male counterpart there it's not exactly clear who it is but there are a lot of interesting things about it. You know, people also talk about the lady of avalon and stuff there which is there's no real, it's very unclear who she actually is, if there was any historical precedent to it. But there is definitely a feel to Glastonbury. And people say it's the heart, it's the heart chakra of the earth or whatever it is, which I, I weirdly have, like, through my own UPG, which is my own unverified personal gnosis, my own experience, I probably found kind of true. That's consistent with my experience, at least. But I've had very interesting, like, romantic experiences in Glastonbury with, like, past partners or whatever. So, like, that, that kind of theme always comes up. But it's also one of those things that because of that, because there is a natural energy there, it does attract a lot of tourists, or it attracts a lot of people. And the kind of people it attracts are... Not to be like super mean, but they're all like classic new age hippies a lot of the time. They probably like massively stink of like patchouli oil. <laughs> they, I'm like, 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 like weird mixture of like patchouli and like BO or whatever. I don't know. It, it's a weird thing. I think there is, there is some mystery in that landscape somewhere. I don't think we're, I don't think we're at a position in our species yet to figure out exactly what it is. There is something to it. And we do know that like, the whole area was underwater. Like back in the Iron Age, whatever, we have Glastonbury Lake Village and the whole area around Glastonbury Tor was underwater. So the whole thing was an island. And that's kind of where the idea that it is kind of the island Avalon from the old sort of Arthurian legend or wherever it comes from. The association between Arthur and Glastonbury, it, it goes back to sort of, I think it's like the 11th century or the 12th century in the Glastonbury Abbey where the monks kind of claim that he's buried there. It, as far as we can tell, it was kind of a tourist story made up by the monks to kind of draw in some to the monastery that was failing. There's no evidence to keep buried there. But it's, yeah, I don't know. It, it's, well, it's, it's one of those places. It does have a feel to it, but I think it is consistently spoiled by the amount of sort of pseudo-spiritual New Age stuff that comes there. It will be very kind of commercialized, but there yeah. is something to it at least. We have that same effect here at uh, at the famous Woodstock where all the hippies and I, I I never experienced it as it was. I've only experienced the kitsch of it and the touristy of it. And yeah, there is a cynicism that I share when it comes to those. Really, it just it's lazy. It's the people yeah, who are interested in this stuff. Around, they yeah. need to just take more of a approach, a serious approach to these matters because they're serious. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I respect it. I think you have all the right to criticize. You don't sound mean at all. Now, when it comes to your 
very specific interests. How do your folks feel? This is the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Do you have a, a family who agrees with yeah, your no, sensibilities um, or? So, well, so they're pretty supportive for the most part. We have quite a fun dynamic. So my, my stepdad is largely kind of atheistic, believe it or not. He's very much when you're gone. I am only my body, I'm only my mind, whatever it is. So that always kind of makes for a very interesting conversation whenever we have a thing. My mom is an interesting one. She she kind of teeters between things. Like she's largely supportive of it. Like I, I again, I some I have a ritual room in their house and like it, they allow it to exist. They allow it to be there. Where if I go home and I visit them or whatever, like I can have a place in meditation and ritual work and they're fine with it. We I don't know. It's one of those things, especially when I was living with them early on, I, when I was doing ritual, things happened in the house a lot of the time. And it's kind of just become like a running joke at this point where it's kind of funny. Like I, back in the day when I was doing kind of cunning man work, like traditional witchcraft stuff, a friend of mine called me in. So yeah, this was down in Essex, I don't know, in that kind of area, like whole old witch country kind of area in also East Anglia in England. One of my friends, he's also a very traditional cunning man around there. He's trained by his grandmother in that kind of area, which is, I'm super jealous of anyway. But he, there was a local church in the parish that he was living at that the cemetery there was just in general, the local church was being plagued by a spirit of some kind. Like it was like a poltergeist or whatever it was. It was like violent and aggressive. And it was like hurt. Like, no, it wasn't hurting, but like there were reports of like people getting bites and scratches when they came to the church or whatever. And he basically got called in and he did his typical cunning man thing of binding the spirit in the jar. So it's a very common thing, making a witch bottle for protection, but also like a spirit bottle where it's a very common thing in traditional witchcraft, where if you have a spirit or something that is plaguing you or plaguing your area, you can seal it. You can bind it up in, in a bottle, usually. Like, something like, like, like putting a genie into a lamp, right? Where through certain rituals, certain procedures, you can bind a spirit into a, a jar or a bottle, whatever it is, right? Usually a glass bottle. And when it's bound, it will, the jar will do weird things. The jar will move on its own. It will move around the house. It will sometimes steam up from for no apparent cause for inside of it, and that kind of thing. But ultimately, it becomes a servitor, right? It, it becomes an ally that you can work with when it's bound, right? You can draw on it for energy or draw on it for ritual power or whatever it is. And my friend, he happened to have a couple of these things. It's his job to sort of go around sealing stuff. It's very fun. So he kind of called me up. He was like, hey, look, can you take this one off my hands? You know, I was like, yeah, right. Why not? I'll come pick it up. I picked it up. It was quite a weird experience having just like a spirit in a jar in my car next to me on the passenger seat. It was quite funny. But I got it home and it sort of stayed in, in my altar room or my ritual room since. And or in that ritual room ever since, I should say. And it's always, it's kind of become a running joke with my mom, especially. She calls it Casper after the friendly ghost. But it has been a consistent thing where, like, if she goes to clean the house or whatever, the jar does move on its own. And, like, it's like she does, like, encounter it every now and again or in, like, different rooms or, like, she will hear footsteps and knocks in the night from that room, whatever, where the jar is kind of moving around by itself. And, yeah, initially she was freaked out by it, but I explained it to her and she's like, yeah, that kind of weirdly makes sense but like when you're consistently having experiences like these it becomes very hard to deny that they exist right and thankfully i was not raised in any kind of very conservative christian household where people think i'm like devil worshiping whatever my mom was always very open with this kind of thing so it's kind of a thing as far as like she she isn't a practicing witch or anything she doesn't do her own practice she meditates every now and again i guide it through meditations or whatever but 
Yeah, it's she kind of yeah she kind of teeters between everything every now and again. But she's seen me do some rituals before when there's been interesting interesting results, and she always kind of gets a bit shocked by it initially. But then she's like, yeah, okay, I'm kind of gotten used to this by now. It's kind of just what you're doing and what you're up to. Wonderful. But my 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 general kind of perspective on the whole thing, it, it works both in my favor and in my students' favor as well. It's like if I. With me, I'm not necessarily relinquished my desire to kind of prove this stuff exists because I, I, it, it's been proven to me. And in my experience, it's real enough that it's having an effect in my life and in, in people around me. You know, so I've relinquished that desire to say, oh, I need to, I need to prove it. I think it's a very narcissistic desire almost to prove your world to everyone else. But my general perspective on the whole thing is I have my system that I work with or I have my systems that I work with. And through my community, through my platform thing, I teach that system to other people and they then go and perform it and they do their thing. And if they get the same kind of results that I do, or it's consistent with the results that I have, then I can say, you know, yeah, okay. So this is like someone independent of me. I had no direct influence that I taught them what to do, but I didn't teach them how to do it. Then they're getting their own independent results. And a a lot of them are consistent with me and we are effectively creating this school for magicians basically who are everyone's kind of sharing similar results similar experiences and then it just kind of creates that that generational link because they will then go on and teach it to somebody else who will have another similar experience and it can eventually kind of trace back to what i was doing i was like ah okay cool it's like it's not all in my head it's not all like it's not all just me because i taught it to somebody else and they did what i did and they got the same result they got, or in the very least, they got similar results that are within the tradition and are similar enough to me to go, okay, yeah, there's something here. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's sometimes it's weird stuff or it's astrological stuff or it's grandma stuff. Or like some people will, I've had experiences where I've had, if I've been working with a particular spirit or whatever it is, and that spirit has come through to me or manifested and I've experienced it in a very particular way or a very specific way. I've had two or three instances now in the past couple of months where some of my students have, I didn't tell them to go and work with this spirit, but they went away, worked with it, and they had the exact same experience, or they had the exact same thing, or something similar, even down to things like the gender of certain spirits. If a grimoire says, okay, a spirit is is this gender, it's male or it's female, whatever it is, and then I've gone and worked with it, and it happens to be a different gender to what the book says. I wouldn't tell anyone about that. But then one of my students goes away, uses the methods that I taught them, and they come back and they go, you know what? Yeah, why well, don't I read the book? This book actually came through this way. I'm like, oh, really? Interesting. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. right. But it's stuff like that. It's like I kind of I'm trying to establish this lineal descendants, really. Where it's like I'm creating this kind of generational link that ultimately is feeding back. And the selfish part of me is like, yeah, this is great. It's basically confirming my worldview. So it's confirming like my, like it's confirming I'm not crazy ultimately because people are also having the same experiences or I'm just making, or I know I'm making more people crazy. Like I am apparently <laughs> if I'm nuts, I'm just making more people crazy. Depends which way you want to look at it. I prefer to look at it from the empowered perspective, but it works. So we can make people can change their life, improve their life with it. Ultimately. Obviously. Yes, I agree. I think that's the better way to see it. I think that's the appropriate way to see it. And it's a great way to wrap up this conversation. Tell us more before we do go. How can folks sign up? I want to sign up. I'd love to have you back on after we have or I have some lessons and maybe we can go a little deeper. Obviously, Welsh Stonehenge is also still on my mind. I'd love to talk to you about that. I know we don't have the most time. That is a long story you said, but 
Yeah, tell people where should they go. I'm going to put all the links in the descriptions, but how do people sign up? Yeah, so at the moment, I've tried to make it as simple as possible right now. So we recently just launched a new kind of basically like a private social media platform is the best way you can describe it. But we launched a new community that is going to be sort of the general home of all of our future courses. And that is Golden Shadow Academy. Dot com. So you can find us there. That's also on Instagram. My my personal one, the, the core community is Mistai, which is my ultimate where I'm currently teaching right now, which you can find at www.mistai.co.uk. I'm on Instagram. There's Mistai official. I'm also on YouTube as well. Same or Mistai on YouTube. That also works. But the way the whole system works, I essentially just have, I have one live training course at the moment. So we meet generally twice a week at the moment or on a Tuesday and a Wednesday. And for um, Tuesdays, we do sort of live seminar study groups where we go over an ancient text. So we, we will look at a grimoire, for example, look at someone on a grimoire, and we will go through it page by page and basically break it down. Or we will look at some ancient text like Plato's Timaeus, a philosophical text, whatever it is. We are currently doing Plato's Timaeus, and we will just go through it together, and we will work through it. So that, that kind of establishes the worldview. And then the Wednesday is the main lecture, which is the methodology, the history, the philosophy, whatever it is. And we're talking about that kind of thing. And I've been running that now for the past two years. And that's like a monthly, a general monthly membership, whatever it is. That is ending soon. It's probably going to end by the end of this year. And then it will become basically like a standalone course. It's basically like two years worth of material, effectively. But I will then kind of split up into independent, like single modules that people can get if they want to say they can focus on like specific areas. Because for the past two years, I basically taught everything. So like, if you, like whether it's astrological magic, traditional witchcraft, Solomonic stuff, astral projection, energy work, energy healing, whatever it is, like I've covered everything in the course. It's like, like I kind of went into it with the whole philosophy of being like, I want this whole training program to set somebody up in such a way that either they don't have to read any other magical book again the rest of their life and they can have an entire practice, or it will set them up with all of the necessary background, worldview, philosophy materials that they, that they can then go and read any book and understand it mm. and then incorporate it. Yeah, that, that's kind of the general philosophy I took with it. So I kept seeing, it was one of those things, it was, like, it was formed out of a reaction to like all the Instagram courses. You go over Instagram, Facebook, whatever it is, you see everyone kind of pushing, you know, going, hey, learn ritual magic, become a code for $7, whatever it is. It's like people just constantly keep buying new courses. It's like, no, I'm kind of sick of the whole thing. I want like one single course, very simple, that established people well. And that, that was kind of the idea of it. But you can find all the info. There's a store page, everything on the website. You can go and sign up there. It's all very fun stuff. I have an active Discord server, but again, most of my... Since we just started the new platform on Golden Shadow, most of my sort of energy is being put into that because that's also now how I'm building up like a library of grimoires and stuff in there and also audio books for things like Hermetica and Plato, all that kind of thing to work through in general. So it's like, that's kind of how I'm going at the moment. So they're my two places, uk and Golden Shadow Academy on com and on Instagram as well. They're my two home bases. Beautiful. Well, I have all those links. I'm going to share them in the description. I wish I could reach through the computer and shake your hand because this was one hell of an episode. This is really, I mean, we took a lot of different twists and turns that I wasn't expecting, Chris, and I'm glad we did. I'm glad we did. I'm glad we did. And I'd love to have you back on. And and yeah, folks listening, please follow up with misti.co.uk. 
and learn all of this stuff that Chris has been putting together over the past two years. Clearly, he's been applying it in his own life, so I'm speechless. But I always end each episode with immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are in the now. Ladies and gentlemen, that was our conversation with Chris Lyons. Chris Lyons, I hope I pronounced his name correctly. I didn't ask him. Um, but Chris is a great guy. Very, very brilliant. Um, had some interesting things to say about the pyramids. I'll leave that at that. But Chris is somebody who uh, I didn't realize I had been aware of for a long time. Uh, at least his work through the YouTube channel Spirit Science. He was a one-time contributor to that channel. I don't remember if he mentioned uh, or alluded to that during the conversation, uh, a portion of the conversation that was recorded, but he did mention that. So, uh, yeah, he was, uh, he was once a contributor to Spirit Science. So anyways... If it sounds like I'm distracted or I can't come up with the words that I'm trying to say, uh, I'm not an idiot. I'm not over here too stoned to think. Uh, there's noises going on. I'm very aware of my surroundings. And it's not as easy to record a podcast uh, in a place where you don't have uh, domain over what other people are doing and or at least just an agreement that, hey, when a podcast is going to be recorded, don't make noise. So if I sound like I'm pausing or failing to come up with the next word in my sentence, uh, it might be because there's a, a pipe rushing with water above my head or somebody's footsteps or a sound coming from where the door is. I mean, we're going with a lot of factors over here. And helping me keep the lights on this week is a lovely gentleman who sent me uh, a Venmo donation, one-time donation. And it's not just him. Obviously, I'm, I'm working. I got a part-time job that I do along with this podcast and working for Sam Tripoli. But I want to give a big shout-out to Zach, who paid me 30 bucks uh, six hours ago to help keep the lights on. Shout-out to you. Zach, and if you want to join him and support the podcast with a one-time donation, just do so. Uh, John P. did so last month. Uh, today we got Zach E. So thank you, Zach. And uh, yeah, shout out to everyone else who supported the podcast. All of you who are actively supporting the podcast on Patreon, Substack, or Rockfin. If you want to sign up on any of those today, the links are in the description along with all the information you need, whether it is the guest you want to follow up with, maybe you heard a song in the podcast that you want to know the name of. I could tell you the intro song is not uh, named anything. It's an intro song that was made specifically for this podcast. Uh, it was made by a group called Destiny Lab. 
They were guests on the podcast all the way back on episode 15, I believe, and uh, or 16. Either way, 17, I don't ever remember. But they're great guys, and they created a very catchy intro song that people really love. Uh, unfortunately, the only place you can listen to it is here on the podcast. So, unfortunately for you, maybe, not for me, but yeah. If you sign up for the Patreon or the Substack, I'm going to be uploading all of the custom music that I use in the podcast there. So if you want to just have the MP3 files of one of the songs that you hear on the podcast, you can get those on the Patreon, uh, maybe the Substack, but the point there is you know i don't know that substack allows you to download the audio once it's in substack so if you can and you want to do that reach out to me and let me know i'm going to go and do some tests and find out if substack allows you to do that but either way if you're interested in the music and you want to hear it uh, outside of the podcast you have to sign up for the patreon to hear that um, and like i said the names of the songs are in the description of the episode so go and check that out along with the links to support the podcast my venmo handle my cash app handle is my full name uh it's just the cash symbol and then mark steves s-t-e-e-v-e-s junior so if you prefer cash app there you go and then paypal and venmo are both at mystic mark so if you want to send me a one-time donation that's the best way to do it at mystic mark all one word no capital letters mystic mark with a k not a c uh m y s t i c m a r k and yeah that really helps out we're working on a bunch of cool stuff sam triple is going to be in my home state in august so i'm going to be there if anybody wants to go to that show if you're local i'd love to meet you from massachusetts new york rhode island anywhere in the northeast or if you're crazy enough to come from somewhere else to a show in connecticut um be my guest don't come from new jersey wait till sam is at the dojo again because that is a really cool venue that i love so i would say support the dojo if you are from new jersey and wait for Sam to come back there. But anybody in the Northeast, this is a rare opportunity to see Sam Tripoli in Connecticut. He never comes out to the Northeast. There aren't many comedy clubs in the Northeast that have a big get, you know, that get big comics, at least that I've seen. Maybe I'm unaware. At least the comics I like. I don't know. I shouldn't, shouldn't speak so um, ultimately that so anyways fun fact uh, when i was a kid i met bob marley he is a family friend um i have some family in maine so all you northeast comedy fans maybe know who bob marley is not the reggae singer the comedian uh, he's a white guy so is the original bob marley half white but anyways um going off on some little tangents here i hope people like that of course i want to thank the hit kit for sponsoring the show 
the hit kit is the number one way to get lit and on the 4th of July I was using my hit kit I took a nice blunt out onto a canoe sailed out onto the lake and smoked in the lake very relaxing if you haven't tried it before i recommend it and a hit kit can help you do that it's funny he doesn't have any waterproof hit kits yet some of them are semi-waterproof uh, the one i have is semi-waterproof but i put it in a sandwich baggie just to be safe um, but i told him i said hey what do you think about a waterproof hit kit i don't know how many people smoke weed by the water or in the water but i like it i enjoy it i like even if i'm just sitting with my lower half uh, in the water have a nice smoke i mean i smoke blunt so it's really it's like a cigar you know it's just soaking in the scene taking our time enjoying a nice cigar so whether you're smoking a blunt like me a joint a spliff or hey maybe even a cigar check out the hit kit on instagram the hit kit or go to hitkit.us and check him out he's awesome he's a great guy he was guest on the show not too long ago and uh, if you use the promo code crazy you can save 15 percent at checkout buy one for yourself buy one for someone you love or even someone you like maybe someone who you want to start maybe you want them to start smoking like hey dude chill out a little bit smoke a joint here's a pre-roll and a lighter makes a great gift okay so uh, with that we're gonna wrap up the show big shout out to our guest i hope to have him back on the show again after i take some of his courses he's a real brilliant guy spending a lot of time dealing with these subjects so if you liked anything he said today follow up with him Uh, The link to his website is in the description. And uh, that's it for me, folks. I'll see you next week on the next episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Until then, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now.
nothing is for certain But I feel it like a purpose Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Hardly feeling like a person But the vibes are perfect uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain But I feel it like a purpose Wait, I'm beta testing old theta frequencies I lay to rest the ego and the frequent themes That keep me seeing life inside a box Small minds kick rocks Pandora let's talk uh. I might need a suture for this rift in space I might stay and see how Lucifer's fruit tastes I'm hungry for knowledge and hungry for infinite And every time I'm peeking I can see it for an instant I'm peeking through the curtain at the crowd Sheeps in their seats and the wolves on the prowl Zeitgeist, spirit form, walking through the aisles Consumerism living in their vacant smiles uh, Now I'm peeking through the curtain at the sky High and even gotta try, gaining wisdom on the fly I'm touching base with things I can't explain Gods without names on a different plane Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit For certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain, hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain, nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain, cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain, nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait. Wait.